Hey friend, are you struggling to find consistent paid speaking gigs? Do you want to know the exact six steps that you can take to find and book more paid speaking opportunities in 2024? Well, we want to make that easy for you. We've created a new free resource with the help of Dan Irvin, one of our highly successful speakers on our team. Dan has booked over $100,000 in paid speaking gigs in the last few years, and his six-step process is going to help you maximize your chances of getting booked and paid to speak in any industry. You're going to learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, and proposal emails and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps and we're going to send you this 18-page guide straight to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps and you're going to get that free guide. Hey, thanks for listening. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, my friends? Graham Bolton here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, we have a, a great guest for you. We have Pamela Slim, who is joining us. Pamela Slim is a, a very successful uh, a coach and author and speaker. And uh, as I say in a minute here, all around great gal. So really honored to uh, have Pamela join us today. She's extremely smart uh, when it comes to all things speaking and building a personal brand. And so she has some great insights to share with us today. Today, we're going to be talking a lot about the topic of IP, your intellectual property and licensing that. So uh, I get a lot of questions from speakers like, hey, there's some you know company or organization or business or group that wants to license my material. And I'm trying to figure out what that looks like or how to structure that. And so she gives us some great insights on what to do about that, on how to protect your IP, on how to market market your IP, how to price your IP, how to leverage all of that. So there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. And so she breaks it all down for us today. So I think you're going to get a lot from today's episode. Let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Miss Pamela Slim. Enjoy. Hey, what's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, joined by my friend, Miss Pamela Slim, who is a very successful author, speaker, coach, and all-around amazing lady. So thanks for hanging out with us today, Pam. Well, it takes one to know one, Grant. I'm super happy oh, to be here. Oh, so sweet. So we were just talking a little bit beforehand. We did a virtual summit a few years ago that you were part of, but we realized like you hadn't actually been a part of the podcast. And we've known uh, each other yeah, for several years. Yeah, I wasn't going to say I anything. Know, I know, like, you're very uh, bitter. I wasn't invited, I know. so whatever. And so it's one of those like... I was looking through the list of people we've had on the summit who haven't actually been on the podcast. I was like, well, we got a bunch of people we got to go back to, I guess now. So good to have you here now. So before we get into what we're going to be covering, just to familiarize yourself with everyone, what, why don't you give us a quick snapshot on especially what you speak about and how speaking fits into your business? So I'm an author, speaker, and business coach and real owners. I run a small business learning lab here in Mesa, Arizona, which is just right adjacent to Phoenix. And so like many speakers, being a writer, that depending upon the book that's out, that could be driving certain topics. So right. my first book was Escape from Cubicle Nation. So I talked to a lot of people about leaving corporate to start a business. Second book was Body of Work that was more a big picture book about the new world of work in a way to think about careers. And so I did speaking on that. And now the new book that I'm working on and just finishing the proposal is really about ecosystems and really economic development and how we can really widen the net in the way we think about our customers. Gotcha. So do you find that, that the bulk you're speaking is basically about whatever the latest book is that you're working on or that is out? Yeah, it's really, I think, how I drive it. I look at colleagues like you know, you know, people who are who write book Todd Henry or Dan Pink, and you know, you put tons of effort and energy into a book. For me, 
I'm a little weird, I've been told by people in the speaking profession in that I actually like to live and work and ensure that everything I write about actually works in the real world. So I really am a practitioner yeah. every single day. The way that I earn my living and the work that I do is working with real people in doing business growth and business development. And so I like when I create a book, it's really something about the craft that is going to be useful, that solves a particular problem. And personally, for me, it's not so much that, you know, I love speaking like many people do. There can be the adrenaline rush and it's fun to have the one-to-many connection. Mm -hmm. But really, I see the book as a piece in a bigger picture of what it is that I'm trying to do. And that's capacity building. I come from a training and development background and I really care more about people applying ideas rather than simply becoming known as a famous person who speaks. And that's great. Yeah. Like it, there's so many different reasons as I know you explore on this podcast for speaking. And there are some people really who are like, you know what, show me that stage. I will shine. And then I frankly don't really want <laughs> to be right. mixing and mingling. Whereas right. I'm the one who's going to be working the room because I love some people that I are do. You, you're much more extroverted than introverted. I am a raging extrovert. That's interesting. Which is really like, funny. Yeah. A lot of the speakers that we've had on the show, myself included, a lot of speakers that we're both mutual friends with, I know are much more introverted. And well, yeah, we like we like being on stage, but it's just like we can be kind of awkward and clunky off stage. You know, I did a, a big project with Susan Kane, who many people know wrote the book Quiet, and I helped her to launch the Quiet Revolution. And it was so powerful learning about the science and the background and everything about introverts. My entire family are introverts. My siblings okay. and my parents were all introverts. So like, they are such patient people is what I've learned through working <laughs> with Susan. But it is a characteristic of introverts where that depth of analysis and the experience speaking on stage can feel like a one-to-one that's why you can have that deep connection. And of course, people have all kinds of wrong ideas about what it means to be an introvert. Yeah. You can be passionate and dynamic and so forth. But afterwards, you probably want to run to your hotel room and recharge. <laughs> Exhausted. I'm leaping yes. off the stage and I'm like having conversations till midnight with everybody. That's crazy. Interesting. Okay. Let's dig into what we were going to cover here today. So we're going to be talking about IP, intellectual property, and licensing. And so why don't you give us a quick snapshot on just kind of your background as it relates to this topic and why this is a topic that is of passion and, and interest to you. Yeah. So my background was in training and development. So my last real job in 1996 was Director of Training and Development at Barclays Global Investors in San Francisco. So I really come from a training and development background. I built many programs for large companies, Charles Schwab and HP and Cisco Systems. And so I loved the process of really codifying whatever it was an approach that companies were doing, be it new hire orientation or management training and things like that, and really building training programs and processes so that they could be delivered consistently in really large companies. And so for 10 years, I consulted in companies and it kind of expanded through the years of not just doing training, but doing change management and executive coaching. And I really love that world. And it's funny, as the person who wrote Escape from Cubicle Nation, some people assume that I'm totally anti-corporate. And, you know, I right. had such positive experiences. There's so many great people who work in corporate. And selling into that market is something that I really think is fun and useful. And so that whole experience is really informs my background in terms of building and codifying programs. And then in the last, whatever, 12, 13 years that I've done startup work, more and more, I've begun to do work with thought leaders, people like Susan Cain, to 
be looking at what is a way to leverage incredible knowledge incredible tools and resources and reach a market, which we'll talk about in a minute, kind of different avenues. Certainly some of my clients have been very successful licensing into a large company. So you might build a program and then have a train the trainer program for Mm -hmm. people within the company so they can be delivering your program and licensing the materials. But there's also more and more probably what you've seen a lot of certification programs. So you might have more in the B2C world, business to consumer. I'm a coach. And so there are coaches who are interested in doing different certifications. So you might have a basic coach training and then you want certification on a particular method, or maybe you want to be, you know, a health and wellness coach. And so you can look at ways in which you can get certified. So there really are a whole variety of different markets that we can explore based on how you know your audience and what it is you think is interesting to people. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm curious, even just taking a step back there on the the intellectual property itself, what for a speaker, like what qualifies as IP in terms of whenever you're getting on stage and you're you're speaking and you're delivering something or something that's in a book, what even qualifies as something that a speaker should be aware of that, that we need to be you know, thinking through something that we either need to protect or something that we could potentially license. What are some of the different, I guess, maybe just big picture categories? That yeah, for big picture. Thinking. So for the record, I'm not a lawyer. So, right. so I, neither of us I, are. I, yes, let's throw that caveat out there. So I work with lawyers and that's actually a, a pretty important part of the process. And when you look at discernment about intellectual property is making sure that when you do want to license something that you own it because you have created it. So there's essentially, there's different parts of what you look at depending upon what it is that you're licensing. You have one category that's something, it's an example I've, I've written about for Susan where She is somebody, obviously, that had a very big exposure, and she's a very well-respected author. And she did a licensing partnership with Steelcase, which is, as you know, a furniture maker, to create what they call quiet spaces. So it was really leveraging her approach and perspective Mm -hmm. on what she understood about introverts that she wrote about in her book, Quiet, as a way to then create a licensed product, which was quiet spaces and formed by her body of work. And so that's a little unique thing. You sort of have to have like multiple millions of copies sold of your book, sure, <laughs> right? Sure. And be respected by the Rolodex of that. That's my old term, right? Whatever it is, the cell phone where you have everybody's number, right? right. Who's, who's uh, influential and famous and with good reason, right? Because she has amazing presence in IP, but that's kind of one stage. For most people, when you talk about in the case of speakers, licensing intellectual property, it would be where you would usually write a book, right? Or have some significant part of your body of work, of work that you have created. It could be an approach, it could be a method, it could be a way that you teach people how to do things that then you codify. So you create, you put it down in paper, you document it, you really create the flow. And so people are licensing the use of those written materials, or there could be more than written, right? There could be videos that you create that you license. The line where you always want to be really clear with working with a lawyer about really what is yours and what can you license is about the unique creation, that it's really something you have created. And I think what's difficult in today's world, the nature of often how we learn is we we bump into each other's ideas and we build off of it. And right, I know for right. me, I, I find that's a wonderful thing of referring to many people's work in the work that I do. 
it's it's right part of how it is that we learn because we mm-hmm. can't know everything ourselves. But when you really look at what it is that you're doing with licensing, then you need to make sure that you indeed are the owner of that. And there can be certain elements of a method or something that you might trademark, you know, with a name or something like that, working with a lawyer to make sure that you can use that. And I I think we understand it loosely a lot when we talk about music licensing, right? It's kind of a model people know. We've all heard the horror stories of people not giving appropriate, you know, doing an appropriate licensing agreement with music. And that's when the lawyers kind of come at you because you really have to have that legal permission in the form of a contract. Yeah. And that's right. Especially like with the music example, it seems, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Like it seems a little bit more in some ways black and white, like, you know, you, you played that music and you weren't supposed to play that music. Right. Whereas like as a speaker, if you go give a talk or a presentation and here's my, you know, here's my five steps to XYZ result. And then a company takes that and applies that. What's the, like, it seems like there could be some gray area there of, as a speaker here, I'm going to, I'm going to teach you some things, but you can't use it unless you, you do these other steps in order to use it. So where, like, where, what kind of differentiates there of a speaker speaking and an audience taking that and applying it versus like, here's like the, the true licensing behind it that's required to really implement this into your you know company or business or service or whatever it may be. Yeah, it's a really great nuance because here's the difference. You'd be like, right, I'm going to tell you some stuff, but you can't use it. <laughs> right, right. Probably not be the biggest, the, the best value. It doesn't go over well. <laughs> um, and the difference is really when you think about it as utility and preparation. So think of the difference, how many times you've been in the audience. I remember the first time I heard Jim Collins speak, I swear to God, it changed my life. It was before wow. Good to Great came out. My first time in Phoenix, you know, I was listening to him. It was like the lightning bolt came through the, the ceiling and like hit me in the forehead. It was amazing introducing his concept of the, the hedgehog concept, right? Mm-hmm. The three interlocking circles with yep. this spot that everybody's, it's so funny. Like every year about somebody remakes the three circles. Right, I'm right. Like, Jim, come on, go after your people here because. <laughs> they, call <laughs> but, it, they call it something slightly different. They and call it something slightly different. It just cracks me up and it's sad. But anyway, in that case, as a speaker, you want to be really inspiring people, right? But you're in the context of a speech where people can grab the ideas and then they're going to do what they're going to do with them. Right, right. When you create a license program, this is where I have an argument for really needing to have rigor on the training and development and performance improvement perspective. Because without going way into taxonomies of learning and development, so everybody falls asleep, um, <laughs> there, there's a difference between like knowing a concept and being aware of it and getting inspired by it and actually implementing it so that you know how to really put it forth in a way that will create the performance changes that you want consistently in your organization, right? So you look at somebody like Mike Michalowicz, right? Awesome guys, we're at Profit First, Clockwork. Mike is a great example to look at. He's so talented in the way that he specifically looks at creating really useful books around a business concept, but then thinks all the way through to how it is that it can be utilized and implemented from a licensed perspective. So, you know, he trains all kinds of accountants in the profit first method for how to help business owners, right? Make their businesses set up as a profit first business. The process of doing that is actually quite complicated, right? You can read the book and some people do, but the majority of people don't. And so, when you're creating a license program, it's much more than saying, hey, here's my three interlocking circles, like go at it and have fun. You really have to do the analysis. You have to train people to understand how to use it. When you think also about 
what has informed your ideas? What are the sources of research or things that people might need to understand that you used when you wrote your speech or you wrote your book? That those are things when you're, when you're really appropriately training people into how to use the materials, they need to know as background, right? Okay. Because we didn't arrive at our ideas just by sitting back and making them up. I mean, some people probably do, but probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like as you're talking there, it hit me. It's almost like, and tell me if this is a fair analogy or if this is off, but it's almost like a, like a franchise of you could, if you wanted to open a burger joint, you could just open a burger joint and Pam and Grant's burger joint, right? Or you could buy into a McDonald's and here's a system that you are buying into in addition to the name recognition. And that's part of what you're getting. You're going to pay for it, but it's also going to be pretty turnkey of you being able to implement it. So would that be uh, kind of a similar idea of what you're doing of like, like a, a teaching program or a training program or whatever, maybe you can come up with on your own, or we can hand you this turnkey method that's going to make it a heck of a lot simpler for you to be able to implement in your, in your business or company or whatever it may be. Yeah, you know, I think it's a great loose metaphor like, that we can all relate to. We can kind sure. of understand like what it is that goes into codifying what needs to be in something like a franchise program, the level of detail about exactly right, how right. many minutes the fries are in there and how you greet customers and all that. And so, yeah, it is about codifying, but it's also about discernment when you think of what really are the requirements for people who are going to be teaching your materials. So I think Brene Brown does this really well. She's also been somebody who successfully bridged the gap between speeches and books and implementation and capacity building, where she's created lots of training programs where she has great rigor. For example, for her, I think it's her latest daring leadership book, that you have to be a certified coach with training, you have to be a social worker or, you know, a licensed therapist. There are criteria for the prerequisite kind of training or information that people need already in order to be implementing right. her work. And then there's a very structured process that's more the training process that leads to certification as to how people can deeply understand how is the material used? How can it be misused, right? How do you apply it? Yep. And then there's usually, for her, I think there's a practice. You have to you know, submit coaching hours. You have to work with an individual coach. And so you can see in the case of that IP, the intellectual property and the methods that we've come up with, you don't want them in the hands of just anybody, right? We've all kind of right. seen like some kind of business strategy that's just willy-nilly implemented. Right. And, and that, of course, is going to depend on who the person is and what their approach is to the work that they're doing. You know, licensing, it's not easy necessarily, right? I mean, it's actually pretty straightforward. The steps I find with many clients I work with are, are more straightforward than they assume once you understand what's involved. But it is something that does require time and investment in order to build it. And so that's where you make a decision, going back to your earlier analogy, right, of you can be somebody who inspires people with great ideas that they do take action with. And you can really feel good about that, right? Yeah. That people are listening yeah. to your speech and getting fired up. I think of Mel Robbins, her five-second rule. I mean, I am obsessed by that woman's audio programs. <laughs> like, she is so good at what she does in speaking and in creating audiobooks and methods and something like the five-second rule 
is such a basic concept, but she has a way that she can teach it where it can just help people right off the bat, right? And she doesn't need to go down that path. But you can see for somebody like Brene, who comes from that stronger research background and is really looking more at how do you create systemic change for an organization, if that is more your approach to your business, then that's when you want to start to look at licensing. And so you kind of touched on it there, but if I'm a speaker listening right now, I'm going, you know, here's a talk that I regularly do, or here's a system or approach that I regularly teach. And how do I know if I have something that could or should be licensed that I should go down that path. Because like you said, there's nothing wrong with being a speaker and I I deliver it. And that's kind of the end of the transaction versus it's a kind of a different business model to say, no, I want to license this and I want to, and there's certainly pros and cons both ways. So what, like how would a speaker even know if what I have in terms of the IP and the content that I teach or train on, how would I even know if that is licensable um, or if that's something that I should, a path I should pursue? So first, you do need to have a very clearly defined audience. So you know, like there are people who have an experience in purchasing licensed programs. So, you know, in the case of people who are doing speeches and selling things into corporate, right, right, that very often they're people who are used to that kind of method because it is a pretty common method that you have to use. And then the best first step is actually doing the training and the teaching. You know, usually most people who are the creators of the IP are the ones at first that are teaching the content somewhere where you see it's applicable and it's relevant and the training is engaging and good signs are where you might teach it in one company in one division. And then people are like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like we need to train everybody in software development on this. And usually that's where you start to see some of these elements of it really probably wouldn't be possible for me to be training 2000 people. And so what's a way maybe that we could create a method where I could train your internal trainers on the method, you can license the materials and do it. And so it's, those I think are two critical components of that there is a defined audience where you see there is a fit. The other kind of defined audience is where you might have other people that are professionals who are interested in the approach that you have in your business. And so like the Michael Port, and now I know he sold that business, but Book Yourself Solid, right? was a specific method that he created to help business coaches walk business owners through a consistent process to book themselves solid, right? To to do their sales and marketing. And so that's an example where you're like, yeah, a lot of coaches don't feel like sitting back and creating a (laughs) world-class integrated approach to business development. I would rather get certified in that method to make it easy for me to be able to work with clients, right? And have kind of the brand behind me. So so those I think are two pieces that are really important. And then I think, you know, the third piece is where you do see from a consistent basis. I mean, there can be some one-off licensing deals that can be great. Like why not do it, right? You have the company that wants to train 2000 people on your method. It doesn't necessarily mean that then you have to do it forevermore, but you could create quite a healthy deal you know, if there's that opportunity. And I've seen that and work with clients on that. But over time, I think it's where you really are, as you were saying, making that distinction for your business where you say, I'm not just here to do powerful speaking and inspire people, right? And then have that be done. But I really want to, I want my work and I want my body of work to be actively working to change things, you know, in the world. And right. and that's the thing that requires investment, and commitment sometimes with team, because think about it, that when you are the one who's delivering your stuff, it's totally cool, right? You know it, you invented it, (laughs) you could do it all day. Then you have somebody else who is representing you 
yeah. who is doing that. And you really want to make sure that your work is not diluted by that process. And so that requires the rigor in training people and continuing to mentor and monitoring and being willing to follow up with people. I, I wrote a post on licensing, which you know you could share in the show notes if you want recently because so many people were asking about it. And right away, I was talking about how you, know, you want to have licensing agreements in place. And then my friend, Ruth Carter, who's a local IP attorney, she's like, and be prepared to follow up, you know, like if people yeah, are yeah. not respecting, because it is astounding to me. I don't know why. I feel like I'm just such a, you know, glasses half full person, but I have seen like people who clearly know better in large companies everywhere, yeah. just clearly taking it, other people's stuff without attribution, without you know, actually respecting a licensing agreement. I had somebody in a really large company say, oh yeah, you better like put copyright in the materials because like we're famous for just like sharing stuff all around. And this was like a gigantic, like for probably a fortune, you know, 100 company. And uh -huh. I, I was like, I don't know again why I'm so naive and why I was shocked, but I was like, seriously, you know, why, yeah. why is it? I, I think it's a culture that we've created in business in general and definitely in entrepreneurship where we feel like, hey, if I can get away with it, I'm just going to take it. Interesting. So one of the things I'm curious on here is how important is the name recognition or the platform of the person who created this process? So it seems like you have two sides of the equation. You have the, I guess, even going back to the, like, if you're going to buy a McDonald's franchise, you're buying the system of here's how you set up a restaurant, but you're also buying the McDonald's name, which gets you some credibility from day one. So whenever it comes to investing in some type of, you know, certification or licensing deal through someone who has a big name that has immediate draw. So I'm thinking of like, you know, a Stephen Covey or a John Maxwell or Brene Brown, who I'm, you know, I'm using the John Maxwell system, or I'm a John Maxwell certified XYZ or Stephen Covey or whatever, right? There's some immediate credibility and clout with that. So how important is that for someone who may be like, hey, I'm an up and coming speaker, or I'm well known in my tiny little niche, but I don't have the name recognition of a Stephen Covey or Maxwell or Brene Brown or whoever. So how important is the name recognition to bringing some credibility and validity to potentially licensing your IP. It's one component, one example of people who really are leveraging more of their visibility and their fame, where people are essentially part of the value proposition is them getting that brand recognition that goes with that person. But yeah. by no means is that the only way that it happens. It's really utility and effectiveness. So I've worked on licensing deals with people who don't have any kind of really public visibility, but they're extremely well-respected in what they do. And they have had, for example, a long time experience of like working with a certain client where they're doing excellent training, they're delivering workshops that are top notch. And that's often where you get those kind of licensing deals, right? Because it's, it's really just more this mechanism in which people can have access to one to many, right? Distribution yeah. of what it is that you're doing. And so you have to have a relationship. You have to be well-respected. And again, I think when you're building your business and you're thinking about what you want to build, I always leverage, I've just been listening to our friend Guy Kawasaki's new book, Wise Guy, mm -hmm. which is so entertaining, you know, and he talked about his golden rule, which is that, you know, people think the, the golden rule is whatever he touches turns to gold, where really it's that he only touches gold. Okay. I, I love that, you know, as that's, that's the Midas touch. And that is the essence of everything when it comes to licensing an IP. You must create great stuff. Yeah. You must really be focused on the craft of building something that is teachable, that really does help make change. 
right? And yep. and that is essential. You see certain people like, you know, Brene and John Maxwell and, and Stephen Covey, who, you know, when they started out way back when, they weren't those brand name recognition sure. people, sure. but they made a decision as they grew their business to grow their business in that way, right? To be yep. really utilizing things like speaking and press and all these things in order to build their brand recognition. But to answer your question, it is not a requirement to be super famous in order yeah. to do licensing, right? It's a yeah. mechanism you can use in your business with an opportunity. So you have to build those opportunities. How would a speaker go about marketing their certification or training program or whatever it may be? So it seems like that some speakers I talked to, some of the licensing opportunities they've had have just kind of been natural things that have fallen in their lap. And many of the same way that many speakers got into speaking of like, it wasn't intentional. Just people asked, you know, I spoke one time and someone asked if I could speak at, at something else. And it just kind of snowballs from there. So is there any anything that if someone's listening, going like, hey, I want to, I, I can see how this would make sense. I teach this method and, and I've had some inquiries from time to time. I haven't known what to do with it. If I wanted to more proactively market my IP and this licensed licensed program, what would that look like? Like where would a speaker begin with something like that? So it's going to be really fitting within your overall sales and marketing plan, right? So you would use all the good like text options when you're speaking, right? Like many people do now it's pretty common where you're on stage and people can text to a certain number to get something in exchange for an email address. I, I think I worked with Tim Grawl for too long. Those of you who know Tim, who uh, did so much work around launching books. And he's so so passionate to this day about email lists. And I feel the same, like email is so essential as the core part of your marketing. And so you would be very intentional for what you would design, thinking about for the particular kinds of speaking engagements, if you are somebody who's teaching like an approach or a method, and you know you have a whole room full of people interested, then you would use as the kickoff part of your marketing process, some type of exchange of, you know, a great cool thing you can give away to them to then begin to nurture them into more of an educational nurture sequence and email, right? About what you offer and leading them. I I assume your audience is pretty familiar with funnels and things like that. that So, right. It's kind of like, that's part of how you would build it is if ways that you might be segmenting your audience, there could be be people where you would be doing that marketing just to get more speaking engagements, right? So you could nurture people along to for speaking. And then, but in your nurture sequences too, you could actually be nurturing people for those who might be interested, who might be, you know, head of training and development, or people who are, you know, VPs of large divisions, where if they begin to get more interested, then you would be creating and providing content. So that's kind of on the building a very effective and efficient way of, of marketing. And that's the part that I think is really unique and special about speakers is we get the benefit of being in person and feeling that very powerful human connection of having that shared, like energetic experience, right? Of right, being together right. in the same room. But it's one to many. Look at the difference if you're in front of 200, 400,000 people in person versus if you're paying money into a Facebook ad, right? Trying to reach that same number of people. Like the impact is so much bigger where you're intelligent about how it is that you design it. Let's talk about the other big question that people have oftentimes, which is pricing. So how do you how do you go about pricing something like this? I've heard about uh, you know it could be on a just on an annual subscription basis. It could be on like a, a per seat or per head type basis. It could be like the number of times that they actually use the material. So it seems like there's a lot of different routes that you can go about it. So if if a speaker's listening, going like, hey, I had someone reach out and said, hey, I'd love to use your you know your training material with my team. 
how much do you charge for that? And then I don't even know what the options are. So where, where would you begin to give some thoughts and ideas on, on pricing? Yeah, well, you know, I think it does. There's a number of components that you can do. And usually there are different types of licenses. One might be that you could say you pay a set fee, but you have you could have something like just a license where the company could use the materials on an annual basis, you know, kind of for everybody, yeah. which would be the factors. It's a little bit hard to break down, right? Like depending upon what market you're in sure, and sure. you know what it is that people are paying for training. It's like speaking, right? there's just a lot of variables that go there's into a lot, it. There's a lot of variables, but yeah. but the variables are definable in that you are thinking really from a value-based pricing perspective to channel Alan Weiss for a minute, right? Like yeah. how, what impact is it going to have on the business of the people who are licensing your materials? Like how much money would they make, right? How much risk would be mitigated? How much time would they save if they're implementing this training program? And sometimes what's really useful, and I've seen this with clients before, when you do look at the difference of doing a licensing deal, if you are somebody who has already been doing training, where you're the one delivering the training, which obviously is going to be more expensive, right? If you have a licensing model and there are you know, a couple thousand people, it ends up being so much more cost effective for them to be training everybody with a licensing model, right? Where you, in that case, obviously it's not going to be as much per person if you're training their staff to deliver the materials. So there could be, usually there's like a per person kind of fee that you might have for training. People work this out in different ways where sometimes they have to order the materials from you. So that's the way that you know that you control the per person. But often more, you can have some kind of tracking. It's good to have from like the legal tracking perspective, some way in which people need to be accessing materials that you can track, right? right so you can right. kind of see how many people are coming in. And, and people license virtual training as well, right? They can right. license the number of seats, which is obviously a lot easier to do because that way you can literally track, you know, the new users that are set up. So it depends on the context of the value that you're providing, you know, what kind of market that you have. I think for all pricing decisions, I like to think of ways that people can kind of consider tiers because, you know, some people want to just be really accessible, one to many, you know, reach a lot of people and and be a very good value because it's often easier to move things that way, right? Sometimes you can be mid-level where you really look and you do an analysis of different programs within your space and you see where it fits and you kind of want to be mid-level. And then obviously there's people who really position to be creme de la creme and just totally top tier and really yeah. expensive. You see this a lot, of course, in more of the online space and where people are doing training where they're charging really high dollars. And to me, it's not the dollar amount that's the issue. It's really where you're always thinking through truly for me, do I think that this is a worthwhile investment for somebody? And it's where you think specifically about the criteria of people who are implementing the materials, right? Right. It's not just how much can I get for people to go through a training program. It's really how much value are they going to be creating? And you want to be certifying people who represent your materials well and can make a lot of money with it. Right, Uh, Right. My old client who was a sales mentor, Skip Miller would always say, when people give you money, they want it back. Right. (laughs) Plus more. Yes. Yes. It's an investment. Right. (laughs) So how would you like, can you give us any type of ballpark or even just range in terms of numbers uh, financially? Because I, and I think it's, and I know that's a very difficult question in the same way that when someone asked me, how much should I charge to speak? I was like, at, 
it depends. There's just, there's a lot of factors that go into it. But I mean, are we talking, you know, it should be several hundred or several thousand or tens of thousands. And again, depends on the market and depends on, on a bunch of those variables. But what would be some, even just ballpark ranges that someone should be considering? So here, I mean, and you're right, like it's context is so important, right? Right. Right. Like it really depends on your market, but it's like, I've seen deals that are like 25,000 things that are 250,000 for like a year, things yeah. that are a million. Right. And it depends on what the size is of, you know, what, what the size of the license is where you yeah. can, the, the, the variables can be where you're breaking it down as a per participant, right. right. Kind of fee that you have in the deal. And then when it comes to certifications, I've seen a range of probably, yeah, like maybe 2,500 to 35,000, you know, that, that would be an example of somebody who is an individual person, maybe like learning a particular method, right. Yeah. Where, and, and it depends on what's included. Do you have like lifetime access to the tools, right. you know, and all the things I know I was talking with Michael Port a while back, just about some of his insight. Cause I think he's another example of somebody who is so exceptional in how it is that he really approaches and creates IP. And he was saying, you know, part of his experience has been that it could get very complicated while it makes sense to have like annual renewals and right people who are continually getting, you know, updates that for him in some ways, it's easier to just raise it where it's a higher kind of point of entry to get the certification and licensing. And then just to have it be forever, you know, to not have to deal with the hassle of all the follow-up. So these are some of the things that you need to think about because if you're the kind of person that's going to be, uh, pursuing like the follow-up to make sure that nobody is, you know, in any way not using the materials, right. You're going to have a pretty high lawyer's fee, right. And that may be worth it for you, but that's the thing I find that is like the, it's kind of the existential (laughs) challenge, you know, of people who care about making change in the world and also are proud of what it is that they create is, do you really want to see the impact? Do you want to see your ideas out there making change in the world and how important is it to you? that all of the attribution is going to come to you. Because right. if that's the case, I think you will die a sad, sad person. <laughs> and, you know, really think about it from the, the impact that you have. You know, yeah. money is great. It's so important. We need to take care of our families. All of us have a little different approach, right, to how much sure. we need. But I've found, it hands down, working with thousands of people now over the last couple of decades, that the joy comes from creation. So where you really are proud of what it is that you've created, you've been fair, you've been responsible for how you've gotten your work out in the world, right? You yeah. provide great training. No, and I think the, the big picture here is like, the, there is just a lot of variables that go into it. And so ultimately thinking through from the beginning, like what are the goals that you have, of yeah. what it is that you want to accomplish? And one of the unique things about just speaking in general, let alone, you know, the IP side of it is, there's no right or wrong way to do it. You know, like we know plenty of speakers who all have, you find 10 different speakers who all have 10 totally different business models and they all work. They all lead to the end goal of what it is that they want to accomplish. So some speakers want to do, you know, hundred speaking gigs and no books and no licensing. And some that want to do, I want to do 10 gigs with, you know, I want to have multiple books and I want to have a coaching program or training program and everything in between. Like we're even going back to the introvert extrovert discussion. Some speakers want to, I want to do my thing and then I want to get on the plane and I want to get out of there. I'm not trying to be mean. I just, I have a hard time interacting with people and someone else would say, like you said, I want to stick around and hang out with every individual person and have one-on-one conversations until everyone falls asleep. And that's fine. You know, there's not one way, it's not a one size fits all, I guess. 
That's right. And I think, you know, that's right. For me, it's like if they're not all crying by the time we leave, right? With like deeply talking <laughs> about their inner child and like healing all wounds, then I've not done my job. But uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, it's totally true. And yeah. that's why this is my point of view. This is my point of view about life. So it's like, feel free to reject it. But really, it's if it, you're just always looking at every opportunity simply for how much money you can make, right? It's like, sure. oh, I'm going to do licensing because like, I know I can make a lot of money in that. I have just never seen the good path that way because mm. you have to love the craft in order for it to be effective and for you to be proud of it. You have to be building something that, that is really going to make a change. And it is hard. It is very hard to do it well. And I say hard. I, I, you notice I'm keep kind of volleying back and forth, right? I always want to scare people a little bit from not like <laughs> investing tons of, tons of time and energy into doing it if they're not serious. Yeah. And then at the same time saying, it is feasible. If you are somebody totally. who is already creating programs, it's feasible to do it. But I've seen plenty of, of people you know, within our industry that might go down the path and experiment with it and find out, wow, this is not exactly what I thought. Yeah. And that's great. That's what you want to be doing, right? You don't have to go all in. You can focus small and you can do, do a trial period. Michael Bunke Stanier from Box of mm -hmm. Crayons is also a master at this, and he's done very well with um, licensing IP, train the trainer, his whole training program that goes with his speaking and, and his books. And you know, he says, get a client to pay for that first test of what it is that you're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. You have a client that wants to do it, you build it, you build that into, you know, what it is that you do with them and you get the test and you see how much farther that you want to go. Yeah. Very good. Pam, this is super helpful. Very insightful. I really appreciate you taking the time. If people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, you also, as a side note, have one of the better designed websites on the interwebs. So for a oh, personal brand, highly recommend people check it out. Where can people find you? at PamelaSlim.com. Awesome. And then from there, you know, if you're a LinkedIn person or Facebook or Twitter, or whatever, all my handles are over there. Very cool. We will link up to that. So Pam, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that interview and conversation with Miss Pamela Slim. Again, I'd encourage you to check out her work over at PamelaSlim.com. Like I said, she's got a great website that you want to make sure that you uh, you see. Just good for inspiration to see other speakers' websites and how they have things set up and structured. Hey, if you like that and you want to hear more of that, then make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss out on any of this. I know we talked a little bit at the end there about fees for uh, what it would cost to do some type of licensing or IP deal. If you want to know more about what you should charge as a speaker, then make sure you stop by and check out myspeakerfee.com. Again, that is myspeakerfee.com, which is a free calculator that breaks down what you should be charging as a speaker. And like we like we talked about, there's a lot of variables that go into it, but uh, myspeakerfee.com will give you some uh, idea of what you should be charging specifically for you and all those variables factored in for your situation and who you are speaking to. All right. So again, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for being here and uh, we'll catch you next time. You're awesome.